Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together. Good morning, William. Good afternoon, Rob, over there on the the far east. Ah, just kidding. Uh, Kismet Queen, thank you for those kind words. Glad to have you with us. Keith, good morning. And we are continuing our study of the letter to the Hebrews, and it's fun stuff. So one of the um, one of the favorite pejorative terms that people like to slap on me now and then as, uh, as I get it in comments on videos and so on is, you're one of those replacement theologians. Replacement theology is heresy, blah, blah, blah. And if you have been, ever been accused of replacement theology, there's a tendency to respond and say, no, 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 I'm not a replacement theologian. Well, first of all, we need to ask the question, what do you mean when you call me a replacement theologian? What do you think that term means? Well, the people of Israel have been replaced by the church and that kind of thing. Yeah, Jesus said that, in at least in one sense. And we're going to see today, the writer of Hebrews says at least the law and the old covenant and the priesthood had to be replaced. He doesn't use that exact terminology, but that's the point he's making. So I would encourage you, don't... Uh, don't resist that label. I mean, we want to resist it from the standpoint of it has it's become a, a tool for a, creating a straw man. Here's replacement theology. Here we're going to define what replacement theology is, and then we're going to attack you. And usually what their definition is is not what I believe. It's not correct. But at the same time, the Scripture does teach that the Old Covenant and its entire system was temporary and it was to give way to the new covenant it was to be fulfilled by the new covenant so it's not a complete set that aside and start something new there is a there's a relationship between the old and the new for sure and the old covenant had a a, a preview of fulfillment it had a picture as we're going to see again and again as we get into these next couple chapters but at some level, the scripture does very clearly teach that the old covenant and the priesthood and the sacrifices, the temple, all of that have been fulfilled and replaced and done away. So don't be too quick to uh, dismiss that terminology. However, uh, it also carries a lot of baggage. So as we get into our, our text today in chapter 7, I want to go back to something else that, that we said. Uh, Joe says, hey, St. Doug and St. Rob, hey, St. William, St. Keith, and uh, uh, what was it, St. Kismet Queen? Yeah, we all kinds of saints on here. Um, again, so Psalm 110, right? David says there that Yahweh says to the Lord, so there's a Lord who is not Yahweh, and we, we spent some time on that a few lessons ago. So Yahweh says to this Lord, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And someone, I think, uh, Lon asked a question yesterday, made a comment uh, after the fact on the video about, you know, Melchizedek is a confusing figure. Why? 
why have him in the story? Because God was setting up from before the old covenant and the law of Moses and the nation of Israel, God was setting up the coming of Christ and his new covenant and his eternal priesthood and his uh, sacrifice that can actually atone for sin, contrary to one of my uh, uh, um, somewhat aggressive commenters yesterday, the old covenant priesthood did not atone for sin, as we will see in the in the book of Hebrews here. Paul says in Romans, God passed over the sins previously committed, talking about the Jews and their sin. But it was all set up to get to Christ, who did atone for our sins. That's why Melchizedek is in the story. So if you're reading Psalm 110 as a Jew and you you see them talking about this priest who's coming and he's forever going to be a priest and he's going to be not a Levite, which was the only option for a priest under the old covenant, he's going to be out of the order of Melchizedek. You'd go back and read Genesis 14 and say, okay, who's this guy Melchizedek? And you start to wonder, what's going on here? But Melchizedek, remember, preceded Abraham, therefore he preceded Levi. And it was all part of the plan to get to the sufficient atonement and priesthood of Christ. So that's just kind of reviewing to set the big picture for you here as we get back into the text. And now I'm going to have a sip of delicious coffee and maybe you want to join me or tea for our brother over in uh, the UK. Ah, tea's good, but coffee's better. Okay, so now here's what he says. If perfection, remember what that word talks about. Perfection is from the telos Greek words, uh, getting to the goal, the uh, the destination, the, the purpose. If perfection, if getting to the goal was through the Levitical priesthood, it wasn't. It wasn't. The Levitical priesthood couldn't get you to the goal, but if it were, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron, right? Aaron, a Levite, the high priest is sons of Aaron. Why would God announce in Psalm 110 there was going to be another priest and another priestly order if the Levitical priesthood was able to get them to the end goal. The implication, it wasn't able to get them there. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. We talked about that yesterday. I'm going to move on because I want you to see his argument here. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. This promise that there's going to be another priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who's that talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He does not belong to the tribe of Levi. For it is evident that our Lord, Jesus, was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priest. You see what our author is doing here. He's doing just what I was doing a minute ago. He's going back and looking at Psalm 110 and say, there's a priest coming in the order of Melchizedek. We now know who that is. That's Jesus. Well, he's a Judahite, not a Levite. And Moses in the law 
gave no instructions for anyone from the tribe of Judah to be a priest. In fact, just the opposite, right? If you know your Old Testament, it was forbidden for any tribe other than Levites to take on the priestly role. People got themselves in trouble in the Old Testament for taking on priestly responsibilities when they weren't a Levite. It was not allowed. He goes on. And this is clearer still if another priest arises to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, that is, descending from Levi, but according to the power of an indestructible life. And now he quotes from Psalm 110 again. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what's his point? The fact that there had to be, or was going to be a new priest, another priest, not a Levite, is bound up in this Psalm 110. And he's not made a priest because he comes from the Levitical line. The fleshly command here is what it literally says in the uh, the Greek here. It's not on the basis of the law where the Levites were priests, but this priesthood is based on a life that cannot be destroyed. And how do we know that this priesthood, this new priest, the coming one, will be a priest forever and he can't be destroyed because that's the promise of God. You are a priest forever. Were the priests under the law of Moses priests forever? Nope. He's going to go on and make that point. They died repeatedly. That's why there had to be so many of them in generation after generation. They, no priest could be a priest forever. They're going to die but this priest will live forever. And that was declared centuries before the coming of Christ. Now, let me, uh, let me address one more thing uh, because of Alon and some other questions. You may not be persuaded by this, right? You may not be persuaded by this. That's okay. But here's another reason why I think Melchizedek was a real person, but not Jesus. Again, it's the, the likeness of Melchizedek. This, uh, this other priest is coming according to the likeness and this indestructible life. I think he's playing on the concept of what he said earlier in the text in Genesis. Melchizedek shows up. He's got no genealogy, no father, mother, no history. He, he appears out of nowhere. You know, he's not born, nor does he die in the text. Now, I'm persuaded he was a real human priest who actually did have parents and actually did die. Those who believe that this was uh, some sort of a you know, pre-incarnate Christ um, would say that he didn't. But we talked about that. that. That raises some problems because the Messiah in his human form actually had a human mother. So anyway, I don't want to rehearse all that again. But it seems like the writer is grabbing from just the way Melchizedek appears in the text. And he's using that as a, um, as a, as a, uh, a type, a picture of 
Jesus, the Messiah, who would be a priest forever because God swore it. So that may be confusing to you. I apologize if it is, but I just wanted to go back and revisit that a little bit longer. Okay. Verse 18, four, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. All right, Arch Deluxe, uh, you're the one I was referring to earlier, so feel free to, uh, to fire away here. The former command that would be the Levitical priesthood was weak and useless. Then he adds this parenthetical statement in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. The law did not take the Jews to the intended destination of atonement and righteousness. And the writer of Hebrews is going to go on and expand on this point later on. The blood of bulls and goats could not bring righteousness. All right, you, uh, Arch Deluxe, in regards to perfection and salvation, what, what, what do you think the, the sacrifices did? You think they actually provided atonement? How are you defining atonement? How do you believe the Bible defines atonement? Because, well, I'll wait to see if you have an answer for that question. On the one hand, there's a setting aside of the form of commandment. It was weak. It was useless. The law made nothing perfect. The law did not get the Israelites to the goal. All right, Arch, like you said, atone and gain forgiveness. Okay, so if you're going to be with us in the long term here, you're going to have to explain then if the uh, Old Testament sacrifices did, in fact, bring forgiveness for the Jews, why did they need another sacrifice the next day? Because the writer of Hebrews is going to... <sighs> Michael Clark. All right, buddy. I'm going to give you more and more chance, Michael. If you ask a question not related to our topic here, I'm just going to block you from the channel already. You're distracting, not helpful. Uh, I don't even know if you're a real person. <laughs> um, so back to Arch Deluxe here. The writer of Hebrews is going to continue. Yeah, okay, so you say they were not changed from being sinners. So, so okay. I see what you're saying. That does not fit with the rest of Hebrews. So hang on with us and we'll talk about it as we go. This is a big statement. The law made nothing perfect. The law didn't bring anyone to the goal, even to the point of atoning for their sin. It was weak. It was useless. And you see how this fits into the, the whole point of the the letter to the Hebrews. You are tempted to walk away from the sufficiency of Christ and the new covenant and his sacrifice that was useful and powerful 
that could actually atone for sins, and you're going to go back to this old system that could do nothing, don't do it. Don't do it. On the other hand, so on the one hand, he removed or set aside this former commandment. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We talked about this yesterday. The entire tabernacle system, in addition to other things, was designed to show them God is in that building and you have no access to him. You are not permitted to draw near to God. For the thinking Jew, think of how frustrating that would be. If you witness the dissension of God through the, you know, the pillar of fire and the smoke and all that and, and filling the Holy of Holies. And you're thinking, God is in there. I want to go see him. I mean, this is, this is what the, the old theologians called the beatific vision, the, the idea of seeing the glory of God. Remember Moses? Moses wanted, wanted to see God Show me the big one, Lord. Show me your glory. And God says, I'll let you see my backside, but I, I can't let you see my face. We want to see the face of God. He's in there, right over there. I want to go see him. And the whole tabernacle system says, you, you can't. You're not allowed. In fact, if you go in there, he'll strike you down. You're unholy. You're unclean. Even these people who have all these sacrifices, right? Arch Deluxe. Why didn't they offer their sacrifice and now they're forgiven and atoned and they're clean? Why don't they barge in and see God? Because God would strike them down. The law did not, could not bring them near to God. But now that the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, has come, it's a better hope through which we draw near to God. The keep out sign has been ripped down. The warning label, enter at, at your own risk, enter at, on pain of death, that's all been taken down. This is what happened on the, on the, uh, at the day that Jesus was crucified, the temple curtain was torn from the top to the bottom and now we have access now we come he's already said this come boldly into the throne room of god we draw near all right archlux uh i, I don't agree with you i appreciate you being around stick around and uh and ask questions as we go uh, but i'm going to move on for now Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed they became priests, they being the old covenant priests, the Levitical priests, they were priests without an oath. But he, the Lord Jesus, with an oath, through the one who said to them, and the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Do you see what he's doing? At every level, the priesthood of Jesus is vastly superior 
to the priesthood of the old covenant. They were made priests by the command. Jesus was made a priest by an oath. He swore it centuries before the coming of Christ. You will be a priest, not a Levite, but after the order of Melchizedek, and you will be a priest forever, I swear. Remember how he used this terminology a little bit earlier? The anchor of our soul, the hope, because God promised Abraham, and he could swear by no one greater, so he swore by himself, and so by two unchangeable things. First of all, God can't lie, so if he says it, it's going to happen. Number two, he swore, basically putting his deity on the line. If I don't fulfill my promise here, I will stop being God, which is an absurdity, an impossibility. But he so wanted to emphasize to Abraham that what he said he would do, he would do. Same thing here. I swear there is coming a priest in the order of Melchizedek who will be a priest forever. And this one will give you the pathway into my presence. You will be allowed to enter into my throne room because of the work of this priest. And then he says, so much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Oh, you see where he's going here. You Jewish converts are tempted to go back to the old covenant. No, we have a better covenant. And of course, he's previewing where he's going to go in chapter 8. All right, let me finish this section up here. The former priests, the Levitical priests... The priests of the Old Covenant, on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. There were innumerable priests in the Levitical priesthood because they kept dying. But Jesus, on the other hand, becomes, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. The entire Old Covenant priesthood by design and definition, was temporary and weak and useless and could not bring about the goal. And the priests themselves kept dying. And as someone has already pointed out here, the priests themselves had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they were impure and they were impure sacrifices and they were offering blood of bulls and goats, which can't atone for anyone's sin. But there was coming a priest whose sacrifice was effective to reach the goal. And this priest would not stay dead. He would die, but he would not stay dead, and he would live forever. And his priesthood continues forever. Therefore, he is able. I love that because everything about the Levitical priesthood is described as unable weak, useless. This one is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
That's us, friends. We have the eternal priest who today, on April 5th, 2023, is alive to intercede for us. His sacrifice has eternal consequence. Did you sin yesterday? The eternal priesthood of Christ atones for that sin. He has made propitiation. God is not angry at us. Again, we'll see. We've seen this before. He disciplines. The Father disciplines his sons. But not because he's angry. With the Jews, he was angry because of their wickedness. And the temporary incapable priesthood they were under couldn't get them to the goal. But we have atonement. We have propitiation. We have forgiveness. We have righteousness. We have salvation because of the superior priesthood of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. It's a good day, friends. It's a good day. Walk in his joy and forgiveness and the sufficiency and the powerful, capable priesthood of Jesus Christ. It's a good day. Have a great one. Better than good, right? Have a great one. We'll see you tomorrow and continue down this line as we get into chapter eight. Take care.